Welcome to Philosophical Tools for Spiritual Life by Arate House. My name is Toby Mendelssohn and today uh, we're going to continue with this question. How can we know what the mind is? Uh, taking something of a more subjective posture in response to that. Now last episode I responded to this question by very loosely examining the different disciplinary framework that we might rely on to find an answer. And this is you know, more or less about prodding you to widen and enlarge. Uh, beyond the roots of neuroscience, and especially to loosen to very fundamental predicates which can easily become dogmas. Firstly, that brain and mind are purely synonyms, and secondly, that the mind must be something very, very individualized, something uniquely and distinctly about you, your own particular cognitive essence. And I kind of raise the argument that whilst not rejecting any of the knowledge emerging in the brain and mind sciences, we must also include, in our answer to that question, studies of culture and society, and especially to pay heed to the forms of intersubjectivity that are very, very central to how we think with our minds. That is, the way we think, the way our minds work, always implies culture and society and intersubjectivity and relationships. So it's bigger than individuality. So that was last episode. Today what I want to do is respond to the same question, how do we know what the mind is from an expressly Dharmic point of view? Uh, because all of the Dharmic traditions, these are the ones genealogically rooted in the yogic or contemplative traditions of India, all of them share a basic kind of optimism that the mind can be known through reflexive awareness or contemplative insight uh, samadhi or meditation. But let me begin a long way away from Nepal or India or Bhutan or Japan or anywhere which is culturally associated with samadhi or meditation. I want to in fact begin on the proverbial couch in uh, Vienna or New York perhaps with a Woody Allen type seated upon it. That is, I want to begin with a proposition which is very central to the traditions of psychoanalysis that your mind cannot be known through your own reflexive examinations of it. That it's simply too unruly for such a task, far too messy. That the forms of self-deception that we're entangled in are not merely little crinks that we can somehow iron out, they are in fact the very structure of our minds, the fabric of how we exist, how we navigate and interpret or perhaps I should say misinterpret, reality. So, from this point of view, the truth of what we are, of what our psyche is, of how our minds work, is deeply buried, deeply concealed. 
By who or by what? Well, by our very own psyche, our own, our own mind. So if we set off on some kind of inner journey to know thyself, to use a Socratic injunction, that is to know what one's mind is, one will swiftly become lost in the jungle of the unconscious. And in fact, we won't even be able to find where this jungle is. We're going to get pointed in the wrong direction the moment we start looking, which means the mind will shut itself off from itself. It doesn't want you to go digging around in there into its strange haunted soil. And so you kind of get the cue and you know not to. And it's only if your forms of neuroses or mental and emotional suffering are too severe that you might then go off and find one of those proverbial couches. And it's only then, after potentially a decade or more and a lot of cash and a lot of discourse, that the analyst may present you with a bit of a sketch or a map of what your mind is, of how it tends to work or not work. So notice uh, this response to the question, how do we know what the mind is? It is a response which basically says, you cannot find this out yourself, subjectively. You need a close relationship with a trained analyst who has the capacity to interpret all of the weird, strange desires and neuroses and dreams and all that kind of stuff. Someone who can read the tea leaves of your mind. Now, I start with this kind of answer because the Dharmic traditions in general seem almost 100% contrary to that kind of view. In that the response seems to be in the Dharmic traditions that you can indeed know what your mind is by looking at it directly. Uh, by examining it, by apprehending it. And you yourself can do this. Maybe you need some specific techniques. Maybe you need a particular philosophic view. Uh, maybe you need a teacher or a guru. But ultimately, in the final analysis, it's you yourself have the capacity to see and understand what your mind is. That is, you do have access. It's not inherently concealed away from you. You can find the jungle and you can wander in and you can start poking around and getting some answers. Now, I think there maybe is some truth in this juxtaposition that I've just laid out between the traditions of psychoanalysis and maybe more modern forms of psychotherapy and the Dharmic traditions which promote this notion of samadhi or meditation. But whilst there is a kind of a sharp division between them on this question, there is also perhaps some middle ground. And the middle ground is really connected to the place that we all have to start from. It doesn't matter if we're in Vienna or New York or Lhasa. Because the place that we start from is more or less the same, and that place is confusion. To be more formal about it, we could perhaps use a Sanskrit avidya, since we're talking from the point of view of the Indian traditions. And this basically just means ignorance, basic lack of knowing what the mind is, how functions. And you know, this often has a metaphysical or cosmological element to it in, in all of the different Dharmic traditions, but need not be anything particularly metaphysical. I think maybe it's best treated as something very, very pragmatic. It's the notion that uh, our starting point is usually one of rather obvious and palpable confusion. So what is this confusion? Well, 
deeply connected to the fact of the matter that everything is moving. Everything in you is moving and everything outside of you is moving. It's a very obvious, undeniable point, which is why I called it a fact of the matter. Normally you should be suspicious when someone claims something to be a fact of the matter, but in this case I think it's quite undeniable. You can examine for yourself, look at your body, look at your sense impressions, look at your feelings, look at your perceptions, look at your thoughts. All the elements which we can loosely say comprise the functioning or the operation of your mind. All of them move all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Your heart pumps blood, blood moves, your heart moves. Your thoughts move, very obviously. Your sensory impressions move, very obviously, all the time. Right now I'm looking at a chair, and now I shift my gaze and I look through the window at a tree. Well, the phenomenal content of my mind has changed, and so the mind itself is changed by this change. There's a new sense impression, a new perception. And this may in turn generate new thoughts, new feelings. And if we do this for long enough, that is if we exist for long enough in human form, for 20 years, 30, 40, 50 years, all the time getting new sense impressions, new perceptions, new feelings, new thoughts, Really 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because we also dream at night, right? Well, our mind becomes like a great enormous library of information, with new books coming in all the time. And in fact, maybe library is the wrong analogy, because libraries are normally very ordered, right? They have a filing system. And yes, most of us are kind of organized, our minds and brains are organized in certain ways, but we're not quite so refined as a library. We're maybe more like the internet. There's a structure there. There's algorithms and code and hardware, software. But also, just a big seething mess of new and old stuff that just keeps on churning on and on and on and on. So, you know, that's the confusion, the avidya, as a basic kind of starting point here. That simply that everything is moving all of the time, including you the you who is trying to see what all this moving stuff is. So that's confusion at its most basic or practical level. And I think maybe a key element here is the lack of intentionality in the way the mind functions. The mind is kind of very reactive in this context, isn't it? It's more like an endless stream of stuff happening to us. The content of the world imposing itself on our minds and our minds functioning a bit like a sponge just absorbing and absorbing and absorbing all of this content until at some point it's completely filled with dirty water and you can maybe drip a little bit out when you get squeezed so from such a place this is where the middle ground comes in between the dharmic traditions and those psychoanalytic traditions in that both agree that we don't really have access to our own minds. Because from the Dharmic point of view, from the point of view of, of Avidya, as I've just spelled out, it's like trying to catch a swarm of bees in full flight. They're just buzzing all over the place. Right? So you can't catch them because everything's flying around all the time. That's really the basic problem here. 
But have you ever watched a beekeeper at work? They have a technique called smoking, where they inject smoke into the beehive, or the bee swarm if it's swarming, and this has the effect of pacifying them and relaxing them. And once they're pacified and relaxed, they're actually very easy to catch or to move if they need to be moved. And I think we also have similar kinds of techniques. We call them drinking wine, walking the dog, uh, watching the TV, going for a run or a swim or something like that, where we intuitively try to do something to pacify and relax our minds so we can kind of catch it a bit. And I think a lot of us who do these sorts of things do them out of necessity. There's a sense that if we don't do it, the wave of endless mental activity is going to become a tidal wave that will swiftly overwhelm us. Okay, so samadhi or meditation comes in at exactly this point in a very down-to-earth kind of fashion. You might say it's simply a more refined and effective technique for smoking out the bees, calming down your mental activity. And we all know about this now, right? This form of meditation, which usually includes some notion of mindfulness, and is really about concentrating what has become extremely unconcentrated. It's what the Buddhists call shamatha meditation. And although we all know about it, and some of us indeed have started practicing it to some degree, I think what can often be missed is the sheer difficulty in making real progress with these forms of samadhi, shamatha forms of samadhi. The Buddhists say that you can attain shamatha, that is to fully master this form of meditation, in a relatively short time. They say, you know, less than a year, maybe nine months on strict retreat. Which obviously is very hard still, but it's also a pretty short time and effort compared to many other kinds of things that can be mastered in human life. And the test for mastery in shamatha is whether you're able to, to uh, concentrate on your object of meditation for hours and hours at a time without deviating even for one moment. And it's said that if you do this, great pliancy, great mental and great physical bliss happens as a kind of byproduct. And I think um, probably doesn't need to be mentioned, but quite obviously if you can do that in a formal meditation setting, that level of concentration will follow through into all the other parts of life too. So the mind will become incredibly supple and refined and quite blissfully tranquil. And all the things you do in life, all the tasks and activities that you do will be done with that kind of mind. So life itself is going to become fairly easy and sublime. But frankly, this is really a great fiction for all of us. It's very unlikely that any of us will accomplish shamatha in our lifetime. Even those of us who commit to a regular kind of meditation practice, and perhaps even for those who are on generally dharmic paths. It's rare, in other words, to attain that level of shamatha. So that leaves us with a bit of an interesting question, which is, what are the implications of there being the possibility of genuinely taming the mind alongside the likelihood that we are unlikely to be able to ever accomplish this? How might this help us in answering this key question which I've been asking, how can I know what the mind is? 
Well, actually, I think this still leaves us with some very juicy, productive possibilities. And they are possibilities that the mindfulness industry, which I've been critiquing fairly regularly in this series, has sort of fully cottoned onto. And the mindfulness industry includes people like psychotherapists and GPs and people informed by the brain sciences, all of whom have recognised that there are immeasurable quantitative benefits, both physical and mental, for developing a practice of shamatha or concentration meditation. So the point here is that there has already been a contribution of the Dharmic traditions to the mind sciences and their related disciplines. And there is already, at the moment, a great deal of research going on in such disciplines as neuroscience, examining the effects of shamatha practice. So in this respect, there's something of a consensus emerging that meditation practice is simply beneficial. It's good for the mind. It's good for dealing with some, but not all, mental health issues. And it's good for dealing even with some physical issues, particularly uh, pain management. So I actually had a friend who had very chronic back problems, uh, which required numerous operations. And at some stage, um, I'm not sure if it was a GP or a specialist, but he was recommended to go off on a meditation retreat so he could learn how to manage uh, the pain of his chronic condition better. But for us, really, the main point is that we can think about shamatha practice as a matter of degrees or stages towards accomplishment. So in the Buddhist tradition, in fact, shamatha is formalized into nine distinct stages, beginning with complete unruly mental confusion, uh, the bee swarm, if you will, and ending in complete mental and physical pliancy and bliss. Now, if you want to be a great yogi or yogini, then yeah, go for the ninth stage. Try and get there. I personally would like to accomplish this. Um, and I hope maybe sometime when I'm a bit older, I might be able to do a long retreat and just get it done. But I know most of you don't really aspire to be a great yogi or yogini. You have other interests and other ambitions, right? So the real point here is that shamatha is a matter of degrees. And it is indeed somewhat easy to move from the first stage to the second and from the second to the third, right? So you can make some progress. And it's this possibility which is so, so rich for all of us because it means that instead of just absorbing and absorbing and absorbing all the phenomena that you sense and perceive and feel and think, that state of absolute and unmitigated reactivity and confusion, of everything just endlessly moving 24 hours a day, seven days a week, of all of your life, including most of your sleep, Instead of that, there is the possibility of generating at least some stability and stillness in your mind. And actually generating could be the wrong word here. I think maybe finding stability and stillness is better. Because the practice of shamatha is not really about constructing something or adding something into the mind. It's, in this respect, it's not like adding smoke into the beehive or drinking a glass of wine or six. It's much more akin to stopping something that you didn't even realise you were doing. 
So maybe a relevant analogy would be like, you know, if you know what it's like to drive in difficult, fast-moving traffic for quite a long time, and then you arrive at your destination, and you have that sense, well, you simply don't need to hold the wheel and press the accelerator and keep a firm perceptual grasp on all of the unfolding mess of cars around you. You just don't need to do it anymore. All of that can cease. And in that cessation, there's a kind of natural stillness and stability, a natural kind of relaxation begins to emerge. So in this sense, it's much closer to a kind of cessation or something rather than a construction or imposition. But it's also not some kind of attempt to cease all mental activities, to just sort of try and stop thinking or feeling. I think often people can have this misconception about meditation that it's about stopping your mind from thinking or perceiving. It's really not the case. Thinking and perception is still going to occur. Shamatha is really about channeling that great, messy, unruly internet of your mind onto one and only one object, and then keeping it fixed on that object. Now, if you do that, thoughts and feelings and perceptions and all these things are still going to occur, right? So it's not like something magical or sacred or enlightened kind of happens. It's much more simple and pragmatic than that. It's simply that that 24-hour, seven-day-a-week traffic jam of sense impressions, feelings, thoughts, all of that pivots onto one object for a little while. That's really all that's happening. And then if you do this consistently, habitually, let's say, for example, every evening for 15 or 20 minutes, for longer than a month, maybe for two or three months, you can very, very gradually begin to stay with that one object for a little bit of time without wandering off. So you keep that focus. Maybe for 10 seconds or 15 or 25. And then, you know, that great mess of mental movement takes you off here, there or anywhere, into the future, into the past, into desires, whatever. But those few seconds are seconds of stability and stillness. So then you really have two things going on in your mind stream. You have a lifetime of ceaseless movement and a tiny, tiny, tiny pinprick of stability and stillness. And the pinprick can expand and develop. It can grow stronger and more reliable and more robust. And it can easily grow to the point where you find it outside of that 15 or 20 minutes in the evening when you are explicitly meditating. Which is to say that your concentration, your focus, your ability to stay with a particular object and not waver from it, will begin to manifest itself in your everyday life, in your ordinary everyday activities. So in shamatha, nothing is really being added and nothing is really being taken away. It's just a point where stillness and stability may be discovered as a part of the functioning of your mind. It becomes a possibility. 
and becomes a possibility that turns into an actuality. And it takes place alongside all the other crazy, interesting, dirty, weird stuff. It doesn't replace it or transform it. Maybe uh, it enables you to see it a little bit more clearly. And this is really the point where the Dharmic traditions offer a doorway into where and what the mind is. It's a doorway which does not depend on finding a couch in New York and an analyst of some kind or a therapist and parting with a great deal of cash. That is, you yourself can find this doorway. It's, it's readily available, it's free, uh, and you can just begin. But in the same breath, it's not so easily found. I think it's a little bit akin to a somewhat overweight person finding the gym or maybe a pair of running shoes and deciding right now is the time to get fit. It's clearly possible and it's clearly going to be beneficial. But there's quite a lot to overcome before that person can even begin a humble jogging routine. So that person will probably have to start with walking and then move into brisk walking and then maybe start doing some short, slow jogging efforts. It's a bit of a process to get them to a place where they can jog properly. And it's only after that jogging routine becomes a proper habit, so this might take a few months of building up to it, it's only at that point that some genuine health benefits will really begin to flow. So that's probably similar, you know, it's similar with shamatha. You have to do a fair bit before you find that pinprick of stability and stillness. So it's not that easy really, but also it's not that hard. It's really quite possible for pretty much all of us. And it is free. And in the worst case scenario, you get a bit bored. So there isn't really much to lose. However, the finding of this doorway of shamatha is roughly akin to the finding of the therapist's couch. Which is to say that it is only the starting point, uh, only the beginning of the possibility of knowing what the mind is. It's the tool which makes that possible. But actual insight and knowledge entails going beyond merely finding a place of stillness and stability. Just the same as once you find the psychoanalytic couch, you don't just sit there or lie down in silence. You have to start talking. You start telling the analyst about your dreams and about your mummy issues and your fetish for eating German hot dogs in the rain and all that kind of stuff. And the actual insight and knowledge emerges with the analyst hearing all of this discourse and then interpreting it, such that he or she can see various unconscious patterns and tendencies and traits. And this is quite true of the Dharmic traditions too. From a place of stillness, it becomes possible to go exploring and digging around the contours of your mind, to examine, to look into, to use reflexive awareness in order to gain knowledge or understanding of what the mind actually is. And this is what I will talk about next episode, what the Buddhists call Vipassana, or insight meditation. So I look forward to taking you through that. Thanks for listening today. If you wish, please keep in touch. Shoot me an email at aratehouse.com.au. 
Tide, I'm the tiding.